Well, I want to go ahead and start. And if you don't mind, I'm actually going to come down here a little closer to you and, um, and uh, speak from, from this area. And that way I can also see the screen. Before we have a prayer, I just want to go ahead and, and say a few things. If we could go ahead, let me get started here. We're going to talk about the lostness monster. And uh, typically, you, won't asso you wouldn't associate the lostness monster with empowerment. Would you? Something positive like empowerment with something seemingly so depressing like lostness monster. And I'm going to share with you this morning a little bit about how we can be empowered through right identity. And I pray and, uh, that this message will be a blessing to you as it, as it has been uh, to me. But I also want to speak a little bit about revival and reformation. We're hearing a lot about revival and reformation these days. How many of you are hearing a lot about that? And sometimes we don't know exactly what that means. Ellen White says in First Selected Messages, page 121, that a revival is needed, that it, a revival of true godliness, she says, among us, is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our second work, our first work. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord. Not because God is not willing to bestow his blessing upon us. God is so eager, way more eager than we possibly can be to pour out his blessings. The reason why it hasn't been poured out yet ever since the days of the pioneers till now is because we are unprepared to receive it. We're unprepared. And I'm going to share with you the very last slide of this presentation why it is we're unprepared in the context that I'll be sharing today. She goes on in Review and Herald, February 25, 1902, a revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life. How many of you have come to this conference to be revived with spiritual vitality? A quickening. This is only something that God can do, not man. We cannot generate revival on our own. It must come from God. And we're going to see that uh, in today's message. A quickening of the powers of mind and heart. A resurrection from spiritual life. Again, the emphasis is res resurrection, something that you and I cannot and are unable to do. Reformation, on the other hand, signifies a, a reorganization, a reshifting, a change in our ideas and uh, theories, habits and practices. And notice what she says here, reformation Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness, even though you can reform and, all, and do all the right things. It will not be the good fruit of righteousness unless it's connected with the revival of the Spirit. Unless we're truly converted and the Spirit is actuating that revival, 
Reformation will only be legalism. It will be dead works. How many of you have been there before? Just going through the forms and you want something better. There's a key to unlock that door. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work. And in doing this work, they must blend. They must blend together. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just invite your spirit once again to speak to our minds. But not just our minds. We pray for you to speak to our hearts to convince us of what you would have us to be convicted of. And Lord, we pray that you would speak, help the words that come out of this mouth to be your words and, and not my own. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Quick question. How many of you have your, used this expression before? Express yourself. Have you used that before? How many of you, and we hear a lot about this today, uh, words that connote self-expression. Like, be real. Have you, have you used that? Be yourself. Be yourself. And we've all used these expressions before. And the question that I'd like to ask you this morning is, who is that you that you let out when you are real? Who is that you that comes out when you are yourself? Who is it that comes out? What's inside you? This morning, we're going to have a reality check. And, um, and so we're going to see what Scripture has to say about what comes from our insides. What is the only thing that can come and, and derive from, from mankind? In Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 20 and 23, we're going to go through these really quickly. And so um, just follow along. Paul says, I know that, what are the next words? Nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. Paul's about to beat, beat us up here. I have the desire. We have right desires. But we don't have the ability to carry out those desires. Oftentimes. The good that I, that I want to do, it's, those are the things I don't do. But the evil I do not want to do is what I keep doing. And the sin or the power, uh, he comes come to this realization that the power of sin, this law of sin, is present within him. And it makes him captive. Captive to this law of sin that dwells in my member. So what comes out? When we are ourselves, when someone says, be real, what is the real you that comes out? Job 14.4 puts it this way, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Who can bring a clean thing 
out of an unclean. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Did you know that your heart, your very core self, lies to yourself as well as to others? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that's, that's the most profound question of this, of, this, of this passage here. Who can know it? You may be thinking, well, I know myself. Friends, if you think that you know yourself, I can guarantee you that you have no clue, no idea what you're about. Because the power of sin and who we are goes so much deeper, so much deeper than what we often observe and see to ourselves. By the way, this blindness, this unawareness is really the crux of the Laodicean message. Did you know that? The faithful and true witness, Jesus Christ, and, and he's the true witness. He, we lie, we deceive ourselves, but Jesus is true. He's real. He's honest with us. And this is his message to the Laodicean church, to us as Adventists living at the very end of time. I know your deeds. You say there is a profession. There is a profession of truth. There's a profession that we're, we are in the right place. See, their claim, our claim, is that we are rich, that we are wealthy, that we have need of what? That we have no needs. But in fact, we're neither cold nor hot, nor hot, but lukewarm. And notice the next words. You don't know. You don't know. The heart is deceitful above all things. You don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. How many of you have, have been wretched before in your life? There's a point in your life where you have been wretched. Can you say yes or amen to that? How is it? And did you recognize it when you were wretched? How in the world is Jesus saying that you don't know that you're wretched? How many of you are miserable? How many of you have been miserable and didn't know it? How many, now, are we poor? How many of you are struggling, struggling financially in life? Right? Uh, how many of you are students? If you're a student, you're poor. Right? <laughs> if you're a student, that's the bottom line, you're poor. How can you be poor and not know it? How can you be blind? If I became blind right at this moment, I would not make it. I would fall. I would bump into things. Now this one is the most obvious one. You cannot be naked and not know it. And yet Jesus says to Laodicea, Laodicea, you are all these things and you don't know. Friends, if we think we know, that is the first sign that in actuality you're blind to yourself. Jesus advises us to buy from him, I self, to anoint our eyes. And this is a key, so that we can see.
that we can see. This is the purpose of this morning's message. Empowerment through right identity. So how do we see ourselves? Do we always, when we, when we look in the mirror, and the mirror doesn't have to be a literal, literal mirror, but when we look at ourselves, what do we see? This, this picture up here is what human nature naturally tends us toward. Is when we look in the mirror, we want to see something that, that is better than what's, than, than what's real, than reality. And you see this cat here looking into the mirror, and of course this little kitten, you could say, actually sees a lion. That's a projection. But in reality, it's only, he's only a kitten. It's only a kitten. And this is what we do spiritually, friends. Oh no, okay. How many of you do this? How many of you like mirrors that lie to you? I notice that the mirrors, uh, in the hotel. Typically, I, I guess the hotel wants you to feel good about yourself because a lot of times uh, hotel mirrors, they lie to you. They make you look at least 10 pounds thinner than reality. As a matter of fact, in my own home, I have a mirror that lies to me every single day. Every single day. And that's what we like. We, we, we don't necessarily want the truth. And nowhere is this more clear, clearly seen than when we get on the scale. Uh, Daniel Gilbert, a psychologist from Harvard University, did some uh, research and this is what he says. When our bathroom scale delivers bad news, we hop off and then on again. <laughs> just to make sure we didn't misread the display or put too much pressure on one foot. I know, I've, I'm guilty of that. You, know, you think that maybe it just got locked on to a certain uh, uh, level, and so you get off and you kind of shake it and then get on again, and then it gives you reality again. But notice what he says. When our scale delivers good news, we smile and we head for the shower. By uncritically accepting evidence when it pleases us and insisting on more when it doesn't, we subtly tip the scales in our favor. Research suggests that the way we weigh ourselves in the bathroom is the way we weigh evidence outside of it. It's a powerful, powerful concept that Spiritually, we don't see our true state and condition before God because we're so busy trying to appease Him. So today's message is a message where we need to come to grips with, where we need to come to understand who we are and what we are. We must be convinced in John chapter 16 that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit the functions of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of sin to, or, or to convict us of sin and this really is, is a purpose of, of Paul in Romans chapter 3 it's verses 9 through 19 I'm just going to pick some of the highlights here Paul is trying to make a case that the Jews 
and Gentiles need Jesus. But before they will come to this realization, they must first understand. They must first be convinced of sin. He starts off by saying, we have charged that both Jews and Greeks are what? We're all under sin. There is none righteous, not even one. None who understand. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a lack in understanding. None who seeks after God, meaning naturally, it's not there. It's non-existent. We're bankrupt. All have turned aside. All have become useless. And the only reason why this is not necessarily a complete reality in your life and my life is because Jesus made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he would put enmity, enmity between us and the serpent. But left to ourselves, we are all turned aside. We've become useless, he says. None who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he sums up, why? Why is he making this point? It's so that every single mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And friends, this is actually good news. I'm going to share with you that this is actually good news. I'm going to beat you up, but I'm also going to lift you up by the grace of God. When I think of so that every mouth may be closed, you know, I went to the University of, of North Carolina. One thing the school is known for is their basketball. Michael Jordan went there. Vince Carter went there. And I know you uh, Toronto uh, inhabitants uh, feel like he betrayed you. But, uh, you know, and I, I only know this because I married, uh, my wife is from Toronto, and that's what she tells me, so I'm just going by what she says. <laughs> but if I and Jay and we're out, let's just say, on, on the basketball, playing basketball, trying to show off our skills, how good we are, competing with each other, and that's what human nature does. We try to best each other to prove our manhood, and as we're doing this, we're talking can I say, we're talking smack with each other. We're, we're trying to brag how good we are. And we can talk all we want. But let me just ask you a question. As we're, we're, we're proving ourselves and showing off who we are and how good we are, if Michael Jordan was to step on that court, every mouth will be closed. Every mouth will be closed. There is nothing that we can say that recommends us of ourselves to the favor of God. Nothing. Nothing. Every mouth is closed and all the world becomes accountable to God. We need to have a right conception of, of identity. The importance of understanding who we are. Because Jesus did not come for the righteous. He didn't. Jesus says in Luke 5.31, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Ellen White says this in Christ Object Lessons, page 153. And this is, is, dare I say, and I'm not just saying this because this is my message, but I believe 
that this is the message that the Adventist church needs to hear today. The sense of need, the recognition of our poverty and sin is the one. It's the very first condition of acceptance with God. She says in the same place, we must what? Know our real condition. Our real condition, not our fake condition. Not what we're projecting to ourselves and others. We must know our real condition. Or we shall not feel our need of Christ's help. We must understand our danger. Or we should not flee to the refuge. We must, this is not a good Adventist word, but she says we must feel feel the pain of our wounds or we should not desire healing. No one in here needs a doctor unless they're sick. And it's when you feel like you have a life-threatening disease that the doctor is the most needed. Otherwise, you just want donation money from him or, or what have you. An author puts it this way, until we really behold the horror of the pit of sin in which we lie, we can never properly appreciate Christ's so great salvation. In man's fallen condition, we have the awful disease for which divine redemption is the only cure. And our estimation and how we value the provisions of divine grace will necessarily be modified or will be changed in proportion as we modify the need that it was meant to meet. Powerful quote there. So we need to get to the root problem. This is an anchor wad. I know Martin's been there many times. Uh, they have uh, in this big uh, temple ruins these large trees with these enormous roots. We must get to the root problem of the issue. And friends, I want to introduce to you, to you today the concept of human depravity. Human depravity. Jesus puts it this way, uh, in line with what we read earlier with Paul. For from where? From our insides. Out of the heart of men proceeds what? Evil. Proceeds evil. And then he lists, uh, Jesus lists examples of that. And he goes on to say all these evil things, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, Pride, foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Ellen White puts it this way. And this is powerful. These, these are powerful words. Through sin, the, the whole, the entire human organism is deranged. Deranged, strong words. The mind is perverted. The imagination corrupted. Sin has degraded the faculties of the soul. Temptations from without find an answering cord within the heart. And the feet turn imperceptibly. That means that you sin. You go on sinning. 
and you're blind, you're not even aware that you're hurting people and you're hurting God. And the feet turn imperceptibly towards evil. We as Adventists have focused, I believe, too much on correcting behavior and not remedying the sin-polluted heart. That's the issue. That is the issue. This is Ministry of Healing, page 451. She says, says, says elsewhere, moral derangement, which we call depravity, finds ample room to work, and an influence is exerted by men, women, and youth professing to be Christians that is low, sensual, and devilish. Letter 2060, 1887. So what do we mean by, by human depravity? Well, let's spell it out here. It's this notion that every faculty, every faculty and power of body, soul, and mind is vitiated or spoiled or impaired. Now that does not mean that, that uh, uh, when you're born, you're born to the full extent of evil that you can possibly be. That's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying, however, is that the effects of sin have affected every faculty uh, of mind, body, and soul to some extent or another. Our will, our intellect, our affections, our tendencies, all are tainted. Another author puts it this way, the faculties which men receive at birth have a carnal bias, an earthly trend, a distaste for the heavenly and divine, and are inclined only to selfish aims and groveling pursuits. How many of you have been there before? What are the implications of human depravity? Well, if the root is spoiled, then all our actions, even our good ones, may also be spoil, spoiled. If the fountain has not been purified, then, e then your, even your good deeds can only come from this self-centered root that all of us uh, are, are, are born with and have. Even the good we do may be tainted with improper motives. You see, when you start understanding the, the deeper essence of righteousness, what Jesus says, purity of behavior? No, it's purity of heart. When we begin to understand that it's not just doing, doing the right act, but first cleansing the fountain. And, that, and, and friends, that takes the focus away from what I can do to what Jesus can do. And only he can change the heart. He is the only one. There are many people out there, many people out there who don't know Jesus, but they quit smoking. Did you know that? There are many people out there who even quit drugs and are not Christians. But there is no one out there that exists today that has ever changed their heart by themselves. It's not possible. If we want pure motives, we need Jesus to change us. So going back, even the good we do may be tainted with improper motives. What do I mean by that? Well, 
If it's prompted by a seed or, or the root of a polluted heart, a sin-sick, uh, self-centered heart, then even our good actions come out skewed. Let me give you an example of that. Before GYC, there was a ministry called Spark. Justin Kim, myself, and, and a bunch of Koreans who didn't know what they were doing, we put together this ministry, and we wanted to change the world. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to change the world. We got uh, you know, involved with, uh, and then um, uh, Israel Ramos, uh, we became friends with him, and we, we, we thought big. We, wanted to, we thought we could do something. And you know what? Looking back, at that time. Looking back at that time, I remember having a friend with another member of, of the group name was called Spark, Servants Preparing Adventists for the Return of Christ. We had great intentions. But looking back, I realized that a big part of that was not about God's glory, but it was about my glory. It was about how can I get my name out there? How can I somehow be involved in a movement so big that it will make me look big? And I said, and, and when God impressed this, this truth on me, I, I, I saw myself for what I was, a fake, a fake person. And I needed Jesus to heal me of that. And only Jesus can. Prompted by a seed, the seed or root of a polluted heart. Our motivations are skewed because they're not prompted by love to God, but love to ourselves. Not motivated by a regard for God's will, but what we see is God's will. The second point, um, of ourselves, we are, and these are some of the implications, again, of of human depravity. Of ourselves, we are unable to do any act that secures God's approval and satisfies His holy law. A third point, the natural heart is not inclined towards God. It's not inclined towards God. We're unable to change our fundamental preference for sin and self to love for God. We are unable to do this. We can't even make an approach to such a change. We're not born with innate God-centeredness, but self-centeredness. Dr. Moore, he actually, uh, uh, I work with him at Weimar, and uh, he says this, Adam's problem was not simply that he sinned, but that sin so changed his instincts that they focused upon self, leaving him trapped by self-centered affections with no natural capacity for true love. Sin is not primarily disobedient actions, but self-centeredness. Ellen White calls pride a sin that instinctively motivates pride, selfishness, and a myriad forms of sinful behavior. Another point, another implication of human depravity is that we can't fully understand God's expectations or demands. We need the Holy Spirit to inform us of these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? They're foolishness 
to him. They're foreign. It's foreign to him. Nor can he know them because they are what? They're spiritually discerned. And therefore, we're powerless to do any spiritual good. Friends, we as Adventists have been afraid of this notion of human depravity for a couple of reasons. Number one, we, uh, we look at Calvin and he said, well, he looked at this, at this truth. I believe it's a truth. And he jumped to predestination. If we can't do anything, then, well, God must be the only agent. And so he has to pick and choose. If man is completely, utterly helpless, predestination must be the key to salvation. I want to offer you the Adventist alternative that is still yet to be recognized by many Adventists. And we're going to get there. But here's a quote. Speaking of, of human depravity, just to bring it home, that even the spirit of prophecy is in line with this notion, this concept. There is in man's nature a bent. We're born bent with a bent to evil. A force. She calls it a force which unaided he can't resist. He cannot resist. Willpower has no power. Did you know that? But we as Adams, don't we, don't we emphasize will? The right force of the will? A correct understanding of the will? Are we contradicting the words of Ellen White? We'll get there. Another writer of antiquity, our hearts are not in our power. Our hearts are not in our power. This is uh, letter 10, 188. Ellen White says this. This is fascinating. One of the deplorable effects of the original apostasy or Adam's sin was the loss of man's power to govern his own heart. Did you get that? The loss of man's power to govern his own heart. This is not John Calvin. This is Ellen White speaking to us this morning. She goes on, When there is a separation from the sources of your strength, when you are lifted up in pride, look at this, you cannot but transgress the law of your moral constitution. Powerful quote. There's a lot of theological ramifications. There's a lot of controversy surrounding this very topic. You may be aware of it. You may not be. And so I need to, my, my, the purpose of today's message is not to create more controversy, but to provide the truth as we see it in Scripture and the Spirit of Prophecy. Christ Object Lessons, page 96, uh, is speaking to this notion that man does not govern his heart, has uh, uh, and speaking of willpower, she says this, man cannot transform himself by the exercise of his will. Whoa. What does that mean? He possesses no power by which this change can be effected. You see, we all, all of us can make decisions, but that decision in and of itself has no power to do or perform the decision that we meant. Louis Burkhoff puts it this way, man lost his material freedom, that is, the rational power to determine his course in the direction of the highest good. 
in harmony with the original moral constitution of his nature. Man has by nature an irresistible, irresistible bias for evil. He is, able to, he is not able to apprehend and love spiritual excellence, to seek and do spiritual things, the things of God that pertain to salvation. Friends, we have been scared of this, this truth because we have felt, as at Seventh-day Adventists, that it makes sinning inevitable. But I want to argue today that understanding this makes Christ essential for victory over sin, but just to meet the need of the sin-polluted heart. This is why this is why Jesus said in this flow uh, of thought here, without me you can do how much? Nothing. Can't do anything. This is why Ellen Wise stated, no outward observance. And, and, and this is in the context of willpower. In the context, uh, and what do we mean that we need to exercise the true force of our will? This sheds some light. This is Christ Object Lessons, page 160. No outward observance can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. Then she goes on. We can what? We can only consent for who? For Christ to accomplish the work. That's all we can do. That's, that's the will. That, that's where our will is exercised, is Lord do it, because I can't. Not, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. The, then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I can't give it. It is your property, keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak on Christ-like self. Elsewhere she says in Christ Object Lessons, page 159, all our good works are dependent on a power outside of our self. Steps to Christ, page 26. Christ is the source, the fountain of every right impulse. He is the only one that can implant in the heart an enmity against sin. Every desire for truth and purity, every conviction of our own sinfulness is an evidence that His Spirit, that His Spirit is moving upon our hearts. So what is God's antidote for human depravity and utter inability? Because that is established without, without argument here, without debate. What's God's antidote? Because we know, we must realize that it is God who takes the first initiative to save sinners. It's God. Now, the, God's option is not predestination as we mentioned uh, prior or previous. But what I call or what theologians have, have termed prevenient grace. A grace that prevents you from the fruition of your depravity that prevents you from being yourself. Prevenient grace. And this grace is typified or illustrated in, in these words in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Prevenient grace. 
is a, is a grace that draws this blind, polluted sinner to Jesus Christ. John 12, 32, he said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Romans chapter 2, 4, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What is prevenient grace? It's the grace that counteracts the effects of depravity and sin. It's a grace that enables the recipient to grasp the true meaning of the gospel. It's a grace that leads and draws the sinner to Christ. It's a grace that brings a sinner to the brink of salvation, to the point of salvation. Ellen White and Prevenient uh, puts it this way. In this context, notice what she says here. You cannot have a thought without Christ. And she's talking about spiritual uh, uh, thought of truth. She says, you cannot have an inclination to come to him unless he sets an emotion, influences and impresses his spirit upon the human mind. Prevenient grace right here. And if there is a man on the face of the earth who has any inclination towards God... It is because of the many influences that are set to work to bear upon his mind and his heart. Then don't let us ever say that we can repent of ourselves. See, we often think that repentance is man's work. Don't let us ever say that we can repent of ourselves and then Christ will pardon. It is the favor of God that leads us by his power to repentance. Therefore, it is all of Jesus Christ. Everything of him. And all you want to do is just give glory, to give back glory to God. To give glory to God. The three angels' messages in verity. Give glory to God for the hour of his judgment has come. But give the praises to God because Everything is of him. Jesus makes the first step. New, a new life, page 21. A lost sheep never returns to the fold unless he is sought after and brought back to the fold by the shepherd. No man of himself can repent and make himself worthy. The Lord Jesus is constantly seeking to, and again, this notion of prevenient grace. He impresses the sinner's mind, she says. She, he attracts us to behold himself, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. We cannot take a step towards spiritual life, save as Jesus draws. And this is the interesting one right here. He strengthens the soul. He strengthens the soul and leads us to experience that repentance, which needs not to be repented of. Powerful stuff from the spirit of prophecy. Praveni grace, again, to recap, is the first step of God. It's the drawing or attracting of the spirit. It's the seeking after or the bringing back. It's the impressing and the influencing of the mind, the strengthening of the soul that leads us to repentance. In closing, I want to finish with, with this. Why why is this message so important? 
Why is this message so important? We need to be convinced of sin. We need to be convinced. Many times what happens is we're first convinced because we come into the conservative Adventist movement. And the first thing we're convinced of is that we can have perfection. And I believe in perfection, friends. I believe we can overcome every single sin that, God, that Satan throws our way. But that's not what we're supposed to be convinced of first. It's not. We first need to be convinced of sin. And the problem is, is that many of us have started a reformation process that is actually deformation. Because we have not been revived. There's no revival. And unless the revival, unless there is a revival, there is only legalism. There is only guilt. There is only a sense of dread for what is to come. We need to be convinced of sin. When we understand our true condition before God, this will help us to stop trying to be good enough. Good enough to go to church. Good enough to go to Christ because you recognize that nobody is good enough. We go to Jesus just as we are. And by his grace, through his righteousness, we become good in, uh, good in his eyes. Ellen White says, do not think, and I don't have the passage up here, but she says, do not think, do not worry, do not be anxious, she says, and I'm paraphrasing, about how God views you. She says, think about how God views Jesus, your substitute. And that is your standing before holy and almighty God. And you trust in that, not in yourself. Not in yourself. We go to Jesus because of our great need. When we understand this true identity that we, that we need to have, this perspective, we understand that salvation is not attained through behavior modification. Ellen White says in Christ Object Lessons, page 97, there are many who try to reform, but actually it's deform. There are many who try to reform by correcting this or that. This or that bad habit. And they hope in this way to become Christians. But notice what she says here. But they are beginning in the what? In the wrong place. Our first work. What's our first work? Is not a striving to be perfect. Our first work is, Lord, revive my heart. This heart is dead and lifeless. And then, doing the works of God, living a holy life of sanctification will come as a product of your connection with Jesus Christ. Another reason why it's so important is that it's the key to ending this judgmental attitude that so many of us have. 
we begin to understand that at the core we're, we're all the same. That we're all sinners in need of divine grace. So we become more compassionate and sympathetic to others. And finally, when we have this understanding, it is then and only then that the Holy Spirit can be poured out. Did you know that? It's only then. Here's a quote to prove it. Manuscript 8, 1886. She says this. These are powerful words. When we feel, that word again, when we feel our utter nothingness, our utter nothingness, it is then, she says, that Christ sees, this is powerful, that it is time, it is time for him to give us his spirit. How many of you want to make it your prayer and say, Lord, I understand these truths of God and I, I don't know all the correct theology. I don't have all the right knowledge. I just, I just know that I need something better than what I currently have. How many of you are coming here just, maybe this is the last ditch effort. You've been striving. Every GYC and YC, you get invigorated And then somehow your life just plateaus out. And you're coming here as a last-ditch effort, uh, in response to the inner needs. Some of you may be suffering from extreme guilt and anguish. And I want to propose to you, friends, that the way to remedy that is not to try become or to correct this or that behavior is to go to Jesus and say, Lord, save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Is that your prayer this morning? If it is, I would like for you to bow your heads and invite the Lord's Spirit to continue to impress and work upon our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, empowerment through right identity. Help us to understand, help us to see. Give us that eye salve that is so desperately needed. Not out there, but with me. And Lord, we pray that your grace will continue to move our hearts in such a way that we be led to the foot of the cross. Lord, guide us and, and bless us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.